Welcome to Sidebar, the podcast about law, politics, and society. We're your hosts. I'm Joshua Turnham. And I'm Brianne Schuster. Today we're talking about gun control and the Second Amendment. In light of the recent shootings in San Bernardino and Colorado Springs, we thought now was a good time to tackle this complex issue. But first, what legal news caught your eye this week, Joshua? I actually have two things that I wanted to talk about. Even better. (laughs) Yeah, the first is just a a short one. It's uh, coming from Saudi Arabia, so not from the United States. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but women are actually going to be allowed to vote and run for office in the upcoming Saudi Arabia elections. Oh, I didn't see that. And Saudi Arabia, of course, is a monarchy. Um, they have a king. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are just municipal elections. So just okay, like the town, local, right? sure. And so some people are skeptical. They're saying it's not going to make much of a difference because mostly they're going to be talking about things that municipalities do, like roads and mm-hmm. basic stuff like that. But it's still a huge step forward. It's, you know, it's not going to give women the right to drive cars in Saudi Arabia, which sure. they can't do. It's not going to give them to right, the right to travel abroad without permission from a male, right. which they're required to do. But it's an, I think it's an important step. And absolutely, I think who knows what will come of it. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And I think we I mean, kind of as we talked about in our last election, how important um, local elections really are actually to facilitating change in an area and how their voter turnout is so low for them. And so if you know, we can increase voter turnout, which I imagine or if they can have an increase in voter turnout because people feel like they're actually getting their voices heard. Um, when they never have been before. That's a great thing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much of an effect it really does have Mm -hmm. and if this is a turning point for women's rights in in Saudi Arabia and in the Arab world in general because Saudi Arabia is not alone in being fairly oppressive towards women. Sure. Anyway, the second one is that the Supreme Court has had a couple of hearings recently that have made it into the news. Yeah, they've had an interesting week. So one of them is a case about Indian law. Right, okay. Which most attorneys don't know anything <laughs> about Indian law. It's nope. it's a pretty complex issue because uh, Indians, they have reservations and they have sovereignty. That means they are their own country, basically, with, you know, this tiny little country within the United States. Sure. And they pass their own laws and they have their own police forces and all this. And a while back... The Supreme Court had a case that I actually don't remember the name of that said that Indians do not have the right to criminally prosecute non-Indians for crimes committed on Indian Their reservations. This has caused an enormous amount of problems for Indians because anybody can go on to Indian reservation. uh, Massacre everyone, right? right? Well, the the biggest problem is, I think, domestic violence. Sure. Um, That's one of the biggest issues is is if you have a non-Indian living on Indian territory um, and then is beating up their spouse or or harming their spouse, um, there's almost no way to hold them accountable accountable or have police take any real action. Right. So civil remedies has been kind of the main thing they've been doing is like tort law. Um, and battery and, and suing people for damages. That's kind of been the way to handle, try to resolve, okay. you know, have right. some kind of responsibility. But uh, it wouldn't have criminal sanctions. Right. It's, it's, ju- same, it's just you know, it's civil. It's not on your record. It's not. Right. Yeah. So this case is actually challenging that. And, and I guess one side wants, 
wants the same result where the uh, the Indian territory would not be allowed to civilly charge non-Indians for incidents that occur on Indian land. Okay. And so do you know what the difference is between this case and the previous case that was decided? Like what's making the court want to take this case? Uh, I, I mean, it's not nothing like this no. has ever been heard okay. before. It was, Last, so it was just yeah, a different... It's just, it's just criminal versus civil. Okay. So the other case, which has been in the news... Yes. Uh, is the case about affirmative... It's another affirmative action case. Right, yeah. And this has mostly been in the news because Justice Scalia has said some pretty <laughs> controversial things. Yeah, I was reading some of the questions that he... I haven't had a chance to read the oral argument, but I've read a couple of the articles about it, and his his comments were definitely not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually don't know that much about... Or I really don't know anything sure. about what this particular affirmative action case is about, but Justice Scalia apparently was talking about a theory that was has been put forward by people, and I guess it was part of an amicus brief that somebody okay. wrote. Um, and basically the idea is that people of color come from lower socioeconomic statuses and tr- typically have not received as good of a primary oh, an education. education. Sure. And so they are more likely to do better academically at a school, at a college or university that is not as challenging as perhaps Yale or right. Princeton or some other kind of high upper named tier. Ivy yeah. League. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's ca- it's caused a lot of a lot of controversy. Yeah, I I was reading about the opinion as well, and I I'm not super. I'm, I guess I should say I'm not as familiar with that theory as I am with the counter theory, which has been much more accredited um, and kind of the, the scholarly articles saying the exact opposite. But I, my understanding is that the case originated from a woman, a white woman who didn't get into a college um, in Texas, I believe. I think it is out of Texas. And, um, and so she claimed that the school discriminated against her because she was white, which um, is always a fascinating claim yeah. um, to me personally. But I think uh, a lot of, I mean, I think some of the commentary is directed at the fact that she, there's a lot of evidence that she actually didn't get in because she didn't have the grades. She didn't have the same qualifications <laughs> oh, great. that a lot of the other people did. And even the school themselves says we did not let her in because she, you know, it had nothing to do with her race. It was because we had other candidates that were more qualified and that we liked better, essentially. Um, but the ruling would have an impact. Um, part of part of what they do consider, I guess, in their admissions. Um, and they have a really interesting admissions process. So it's if you're within the top 10% of any school in that state, um, then you're automatically admitted into the school, into the university. Oh, interesting. Um, which is, yeah, a really unique way that I think has its pros and cons in some sense, right? It's good for, let's say you're going to a, an underperforming school that might be predominantly people of color. It allows... Oh, you right. to still get into a, yeah. a high university um, because you're in the top of your class. Exactly, but you're, you're amongst your peers, not compared to other people at perhaps better schools. Exactly, better high schools. Exactly, yeah. and I say, but you know, and I don't necessarily mean better in the sense of like teachers or anything like that, but just statistically, well, there's so what, many other exactly so many factors yeah. that go into absolutely. It. Um, and so that's how they get, I guess, like ninety two percent of their students is actually through that program. Oh wow, um, they're 
that means they're leaving out the bottom 90 percent of their <laughs> of all the yeah <laughs> and so okay. she so this student didn't get in through that program because she wasn't in the top percent top 10 percent of her okay. high school so she applied through the other program um or through the other means which they kind of look at really holistically your test scores your gpa your background your you know will you and so those things um and she her score was lower than other applicants so that's kind of interesting but i think even if even if she were excluded on the fact that i mean for me it would be um still i don't think problematic i think affirmative action is an incredibly great thing um and still well, very Supreme necessary Court would disagree with you mostly. <laughs> And so that's that's the issue is that if um, as they'll be striking down whether race can be even considered. Yeah, I mean, the, the Supreme Court's treatment of affirmative action has been disappointing. To, yeah, to there's say a, the least. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason that it's uh, being brought by a white person and why it's, you know, being challenged versus right. asking for additional protections or something like well, that. Well, maybe we can do a whole episode on, <laughs> yeah, on affirmative action <laughs> case law. Yeah, it, it really is an interesting absolutely. subject. Especially because one of the uh, Hallmark cases in affirmative action um, is from Seattle. I was just going to say, I know there's some efforts to overturn um, the initiative here that bans affirmative action, too. So that could be an interesting topic. But anyway, moving on. Yeah. Um, what, did, what did you hear in the news lately? <laughs> kind of similar. Uh, I think something that we're all have been reading about is uh, Donald Trump's statement that he thinks all Muslims should be banned from entering the United States. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, and I've been reading again kind of some mixed commentary about whether or not um, he has the ability to do that. I think a lot of people, I was surprised actually, um, I think I always am in the Seattle bubble of living among more liberal and progressive uh, folks to see so much support actually for his proposal. I know I read a couple articles today about, um, was it Carter that banned all Iranians? I from entering uh, the country. Oh, I saw something briefly about that. I also saw something that said, yeah, that's not what you think it is. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say, too. That was that was not uh, really what happened. Um, so I think it's I, I I think it's an interesting um, commentary that that people are having on it. I think it's blatantly unconstitutional for a number of reasons, but what is interesting about it is kind of this broad sweeping authority that we've given the executive branch, right, to control immigration policies. Oh, yeah. And so I think, you know, it might not be case law unconstitutional, right? Like, I don't think that there's necessarily precedent to say this, the Supreme Court has declared it unconstitutional, but I think that if it were to go before them now, um, it would hopefully <laughs> be declared unconstitutional. One would hope so. I mean, I guess one problem is that you do have the uh, Korematsu. Exactly. Um, a famous Supreme Court case that uh, upheld the decision to have the Japanese internment camps in World War II. Right. Which, that's the only time that's happened, so the Supreme Court has never had a chance to overturn it. And I think most people wish or, you know, kind of hope that if something like that ever did come up again, that, that they would, that they would overturn Korematsu, that it was a terrible, terrible decision. Yeah. That lacked so much logic. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you do have that precedent. No, now. and that's, it is very true. I know in one of my law school classes, we actually had to debate that case as if we were, um, do oral argument as if we were on both sides. And I had to be on the, on the government side. And it was so hard to make my argument without like kind of, 
being ill, <laughs> like <laughs> laughing, <laughs> like it just was such a ridiculous argument. But yeah, all right, well, well let's move on. Oh, sorry. I, I was just gonna say, <laughs> speaking of the Korematsu and Japanese internment, the other person that has been in in uh, in the media quite a bit lately in response to Trump is George Takei. Absolutely, who was in an internment camp as a child. And his perspective has been really interesting to say. But anyway, that's that's enough for the news stories. Let's uh, let's jump right into today's topic. This is something that I really have enjoyed studying uh, gun control in the Second Amendment. I did take a class all on the Second Amendment <laughs> in law school because it's something that really fascinates me. Yeah. And I have so much that we could potentially talk about. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to cut you off. <laughs> yeah, we'll try and limit a little bit. Uh I think kind of the first thing to to point out is that when it comes to gun control, every single state is wildly different. Gun control regulations vary so much state to state. Yeah. And I actually saw this really great NPR article. Oh, that, I saw that too. Yeah, it had an infographic about the different laws in different states. I'm going to post it on our website. So for anybody listening that wants to take a look, really nice, clear depiction of how these different laws you know which states have which versions of different laws but they look at nine different uh gun control measures that are the most common types of gun control regulation uh one is the whether there's a licensing and permitting scheme that would uh be so you'd require you to have a license or a permit to either purchase or own a gun whether or not there are waiting periods to purchase a gun be it a handgun or a long gun whether or not the state has universal background checks, which this is a big one, um, whether or not you need a background check to buy a gun at, say, a gun show. Sure. Which is normally considered a private sale. But just like private sales of um, cars, you, you're still required to report that. But, right. You know, so it, something similar to that. Um, whether or not you are required to register your gun. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not the state allows concealed carry whether or not they allow open carry of both handguns and long guns, uh, whether or not the state has any assault weapon restrictions, which is an interesting debate in and of itself, I think. Maybe we can touch on that a little bit later. And then whether or not the state has any kind of domestic violence gun possession laws. So if you have a domestic violence... If you have a domestic violence charge against you or domestic violence conviction... Restraining order too, right? Right. Uh, And again, all of these, like even if, you know... There are multiple states that have the same category of regulation. They're all wildly different. And so in that infographic site, and I don't remember, but I imagine since you didn't list it, they don't talk about it. But um, so do you think that it's because states are mostly consistent in banning felons from possessing a firearm? I know oh. most states that I've lived in, yeah, I don't if you think have a felony article... conviction, but I don't remember reading about that. I, I didn't read anything about it. I... I imagine you're probably right. It probably is fairly consistent that in general, if you have a felony conviction, you're not allowed to have a gun. And uh, that has been upheld by the Supreme Court. That, that yeah. That infringement on the right to bear arms is legitimate. Which is interesting as well. Right. But <laughs> yeah, that's a different conversation, I think. <laughs> but anyway, because every state is different, like I've been saying, it actually doesn't necessarily matter how strong your particular state's gun laws are sure. because a neighboring state might have very weak 
laws. So you can just go next door and exactly. get, your, get your gun. And so there's one case that is re- a really good look at how this plays out. And that's the case of New York State. And in New York, so New York has for a long time now had very strict gun laws. It's actually fairly It's one of the most restrictive, and a, right? It's a very lengthy process to get a permit and then to actually purchase a gun. And so the the Brady campaign, for those of you who don't know, the Brady campaign is a nonprofit organization that advocates for gun control regulation. And they have this really great uh, scorecard that is just a, a letter grade for each state on how strong or how good their gun laws are. And just to give you an idea, New York gets an A minus. Okay, so pretty good. Do you, do you know what Washington <laughs> State's is? I bet it's a B minus. <laughs> I have no idea. I actually don't remember, <laughs> but I, I think it's a C minus. I think you're right. Actually, it's, I was. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very good. <laughs> no, the, uh, Washington State's restrictions are pretty pretty lax. Lax, sure. Um, anyway, so in the '90s, New York, and especially New York City, which is an enormous city and has lots of uh, crime activity, mm-hmm. uh, they were really trying to find ways to limit the number of guns that were available and in criminals' hands. And data from the Bureau of Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives showed that 80 to 90% of guns used in crimes throughout New York State were bought outside of the state because of the strict Right, because you couldn't get it, so I'll just go next. And there are a number of different states where people bought guns for, but Virginia accounted for about a quarter of these guns purchased out of state. Wow. And Florida, Texas, and Georgia were also common sources of guns. They're actually some of the biggest ones uh, throughout the country. Any state that has strict gun laws, you're very likely to see guns coming in from From those those couple of states. states. So New York started working with Virginia. They had a kind of moment of cooperation. (laughs) And through this effort, um, uh, Virginia ultimately passed a limit on handgun purchases so that you could only buy one handgun per month. Oh, okay. Yeah, because before, <laughs> you could go in and be like, I would like 100 handguns, please. And then the next day, you'd be like, you know what? I need 100 more. And then just ship them on up to to New York. And there is nothing illegal about that. So, so now you can only buy 12 a year. Right, 12 okay. a year, you know. So, uh, Unsurprisingly, perhaps, after this restriction went into place, the number of Virginia handguns that were used in crimes in New York fell by 61%. Wow. So this type of very simple regulation... And seemingly is a, very, you know, logical. Very effective. Yeah. Yeah, very, very logical. Um, I, I saw one thing that said that... Uh, one handgun is more than enough. That was kind of, I guess, a slogan. Yeah. And it just made me think of Pokemon. Like, you got to have them all. <laughs> guns guns aren't Pokemon. You don't have to have them all. I think one will do the job. <laughs> or 12, you know, if you really 12. need that many, you can go. You can give one, one to all of your relatives for Christmas. But if, if you're buying guns in bulk, uh, you're probably not up to legitimate ends. So... This huge mishmash of laws and all the craziness that we have today with modern gun control laws, uh, it all comes from ultimately the Second Amendment and its somewhat ambiguity. Sure. And that it's it's notoriously one of the strangest 
wor- stra- most strangely worded amendments. Uh, yeah, con- it's, or, it's or not anything nice. in the Constitution. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the history of the Second Amendment. Okay. This is something where I nerd out a little bit. So I'm going to try and <laughs> keep it brief because I know some of these history lessons are less interesting to other people. <laughs> but I do want to start off by saying that one of the we talk often about the Founding Fathers. But the Founding Fathers are not some monolithic group whose will we can just discern from the text of the Constitution that they actually fought bitterly over every word in the Constitution and just hours upon hours of debate about how to structure the government of our country. And there's a lot of disagreement. So to say that the Founding Fathers wanted this or they wanted that, you're... I mean, they wanted slaves too, right? (laughs) Well, there was that. (laughs) So... Before we start talking about what actually happened with the Second Amendment, do you know what gun ownership actually looked like in the 1700s, and especially the late 1700s? It was a little bit before I was born, so <laughs> no, I, I really don't actually. I have no idea. So who, who do you think actually owned guns? Who was most likely to own guns? I would guess like plantation owners, like rich white men. Uh, that's probably not a bad guess. Uh, <laughs> but it's what, what What most people think is... Generally, if you ask that question to most people, I, I, I think you're likely to hear, like, uh, farmers for hunting or for protection okay. um, from Indians um, or, or things like that. Uh, but the reality actually seems that's not the case. For the most part, farmers had no use for guns. They didn't really go hunting often. Right. And guns were expensive. Yeah. They were a lu- kind of a luxury good. They weren't very good, first off, (laughs) and if they weren't kept very well, they very quickly deteriorated and became inoperable because it's a lot of wood parts and a lot of iron. You don't have the high quality steel that we have now, and so they would just degrade over time and needed a lot of care. So they were were expensive to buy, they were expensive to maintain, Mm -hmm. and required a lot of work. Plus, you're dealing with muskets and very early rifles. Like These weren't good... Weapons no, they're not <laughs> compared to modern standards. I was gonna say safe, but I guess guns are not really ever safe if you're on the other end. Yeah, well, I guess unless you have like a flak jacket, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so you, you, it's not you know, it's not like every single early American were, were hunters that had guns. Uh, right. Gun ownership was actually not widespread. Um, but you, you do see that hunting is important to some people, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But the first real talk about a right to bear arms actually is seen in the Virginia Bill of Rights, which was passed in 1776. And it stated that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained in arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state. That standing armies in time of peace should be avoided as dangerous to liberty, and that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. Oh, it's pretty much what we have today, right? Right. So <laughs> you'll notice that there actually is no reference to the right to bear no. arms, but there is this talk about militia duty. Having like a right to have a protecting body. Yeah, exactly. And, and militia were just common, everyday people. Well, white property-owning men, sure. mostly. <laughs> And, um, although you do actually see it at different points in time, black militias, um, but yeah, no, they're mostly white property owning men and they're just normal everyday people. They are not 
military. Okay. And so they are... They are the farmers and the blacksmiths and the lawyers or, you know, whatever. And so they have a day job. And uh, as so as part of your milita- your militia duty, mm-hmm. um, part of it is to arm yourself because the local municipality or whatever is not going to arm you. Okay. And so Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, was from Virginia and... When the bill, the Virginia Bill of Rights was being debated, he actually wanted there to be a specific right to bear arms that was personal and not linked to mili- okay, military. Okay, so for individual duty. people to have. Yeah, because Thomas Jefferson was all about kind of individual uh, liberties. Liberties, things broadly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so he actually proposed language to the Virginia uh, legislature. That said, uh, no free man shall be debarred the use of arms. But this was so unpopular that nobody <laughs> liked it. <laughs> he couldn't get enough support for it. Um, so this was actually related to the claim that if you disarm people, only criminals will have arms. So this is an argument we still see today. Yeah. Uh, that's why he, that was one of the reasons he wanted that included. Uh, but like I said, his proposal was not very well received. And so he amended his proposal to say that freemen shall not be debarred within his own lands or tenements. But that still wasn't popular enough to pass. It didn't make it into the Virginia Bill of Rights. So this idea of personal rights to bear arms was just not very popular it was in, an act- in Virginia. Yeah, it wasn't nearly as popular as it is today. Yeah. So about 11 years later, we have the Continental Congress with the... Yeah, they're like, oh yeah, those articles of federation <laughs> didn't work out so well. So we get the with the U.S. Constitution, and it was actually kind of radical. It gave the power to call forth and organize the militias to Congress in Article One, Section Eight, and uh, it made the president as the commander in chief. It uh, made it also the commander in chief of the state militias. Okay. So you're taking the local militias, which were under local and state control, and giving it to federal control. Which seems kind of the opposite of what the original intent of the... um... Yeah, so... (laughs) so The thing we were just talking about, the opposite of what... Yeah, it was hugely, hugely hugely controversial. This This is one of the things that everybody fought just terribly about. Okay. And... One of the, one of the reasons it was controversial is that early Americans really distrusted standing armies, and yeah. this new constitution was creating a standing army, and it was it was every everything that was the embodiment of evil in Britain, absolutely because they had the strongest best power. military power, yep, and that was seen as corrosive and, and corrupt, and so that's why you know with the Virginia Bill of Rights you hear that the um, you know, militia is the natural and proper safe defense of a, of a state. Exactly. So that's that's where this comes from. But what we see in the Revolutionary War is that militias really suck. <laughs> They're really bad at waging war, especially against an army like Great Britain's. Right. Who's the well best trained, armed, best trained. Well armed, absolutely. And, well organized. And uh, so there are, there are actually some critics of the militias during the Revolutionary War. Chief among them, George Washington, he, while publicly was supportive mm-hmm. of the militias and gracious and all that, 
privately in his letters to Congress was like, please send me actual trained people because <laughs> these militia people are terrible. Uh, they drink all the time. They were untrained. So discipline was terrible. At the sign of a fight, they would just run away. And uh, as I mentioned before, guns are expensive. So, so if you're a farmer mm-hmm. who doesn't have the money to buy a gun, you show up for militia duty without a gun. Right. And yeah, so the militias were just just not a great idea. And so you see these people that are like, okay, if we want to maintain our independence and our freedom and we have to, to be, do it ourselves and, and to be a, a power in the world, we need a real army because the militias aren't going to cut it. Sure. Somebody's going to come and take over us again, just like, Britain, uh, or, like yeah. the UK tried to. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, the Constitution, huge upheaval, huge tension, and a group of our founding fathers um, wrote the Federalist Papers, which are very well known now. But basically, it was a series of letters to the public, open letters to the public, um, explaining why this new Constitution should be adopted and ratified. And they spoke several times about um in these essays about the power of the militias being given over to the federal government and the power to raise army so this idea of the militias is and the standing army that tension was one of the driving forces of many people in trying to draft this new constitution and ultimately of course the constitution is amended because of these very concerns right so when we see the Second Amendment, you do have to have this context in mind. And the Second Amendment was first proposed by James Madison. Of course, it wasn't the Second Amendment at the time. It was proposed by James Madison in the House of Representatives in 1789. And the way he phrased it initially was, The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country, but no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. So again, you see the the right to bear arms, but is directly linked to militia service. And this this exemption for people who have religious scruples, which we would now call uh, conscious conscious Mm -hmm. objectors, it kind of shows that, you know, like, okay, you also can't force people to bear, bear arms. arms. Right. And again, it's all related to militia and military duty. That gets uh, amended a couple of times. Um, the House committee changes it a little bit. Again, and it, they actually kind of reverse it so that the militia part is front and center. And then the right to bear arms is more towards the end. Um, and ultimately the House passes... A resolution that states a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people being the best security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed but no one religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall not shall be compelled to render military service in person so now we're starting to see it starts to look like the actual second amendment this goes over to the senate and they amend it to what looks much more closely like the actual second amendment and Ultimately, what the Senate passes is what the House agrees to, and that's what is ultimately ratified as the Second Amendment, and that states, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So it's kind of an oddly phrased Mm -hmm. statement, 
but you see where all these terms come from right and as as it evolves in the house and the senate so here's one kind of interesting sticking point in the first amendment do you know how that the how that starts off what are the first couple words Oh, Brianne, I'm so I know. So the first word, all people. The first no. <laughs> the first words are Congress shall make oh, no, no law. law. Abridging, yep. Abridging and then list the yes, rights. Yes, I did know. So <laughs> the qu- one question that I think is important is Congress clearly knows how to quite plainly say Congress can't do infringe anything. upon these rights. Absolutely. So why do we have this odd phrasing in the Second Amendment? Why didn't they just say? Uh, Congress shall make no law abridging the right of the people to keep and bear arms. The end. Right. Individuals. Right. They, yep. they very well could have done that. It's it's not just the different way that people wrote and spoke back then. Right. Yeah. It is written very differently than a lot of the amendments, really. Um, but the first one's a great example and ironically has been infringed upon, I think, much more so one could argue than um, than the Second Amendment. Right, so there's one person who has put this theory together that kind of like you said that you know there has been infringements on the right to bear arms because no right is absolute. Sure. We, we allow the government to put regulation and restrictions on most rights, most notor- like the kind of classic example is, well, you can't yell fire in a crowded building. Right. Right, that's the kind of classic restriction on the freedom of speech. And generally, you know, restrictions that make sense and protect people sure. more than it infringes it's going to be okay it's kind of a simplistic way of saying it but that's that's kind of the way it is but uh so this one person robert spitzer he's written a couple books on this matter is kind of i guess a historical expert on on particularly this issue and he has has said that modern day people talk about the right to bear arms in in one of two ways one way is that there is this individual right to bear arms to protect yourself. Right. And the other is that, no, there, there's just this collective right of the people to, 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 to defend, yeah, sure. to defend, to defend the state. Um, and that that's, that's kind of the more leftist side, whereas the individual part is the more right wing side. And he says that neither of those are really right. And that a lot of the founding fathers actually thought, of civic duty being right alongside of civic rights and that in this instance there's actually this civic duty to serve in the militia and to protect your country and your state Mm -hmm. and that is directly linked to the civic right of bearing arms but that they're they're inextricable so that you're not you're not being allowed or you don't have the right to bear arms unless you're actually serving in this part of the militia or serving not, this part of... I mean, I, I don't think he would phrase it that way, but it's like you have one because of the other. They, they don't exist independently right. of, one, of one another. Okay. And that the reason you have the right to bear arms is because at any time we might call on you to, to serve in the militia. Okay. Right? It's not, it's not because of a, a right an individual personal right to defend yourself with firearms it's because you have to be you have this larger purpose of protecting the state um that, right right that, well, that's why yeah, ultimately have... that's that's what he says okay and i i actually thought that was an interesting argument and pretty compelling um i i think perhaps i was more prone to 
buy into that because I, in general, think that the Second Amendment obviously is linked to militia <laughs> duty. Right. And, and so the way he explains it made sense, sense to me. But, you know, it'd be interesting to see a different opinion. Um, but anyway, the, the Supreme Court does get a couple of opportunities to in- interpret the Second Amendment, but it is probably one of the least uh, litigated amendments. Right. I mean, they just denied cert recently to another case. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to bring that up again <laughs> we'll later. Come, okay, we'll come to it. Because it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the early Supreme Court rulings. I'll try to make this quick because some of this is less interesting. Um, but in 1876, so right after um, the Constitution of the Amendments, um, no, not, uh, you know, a while after, 1876, <laughs> not 1776, 100 years later. Um, so the U.S. versus Cruikshank was really the first time that the Supreme Court addressed the Second Amendment. So you have 100 years of the Second Amendment just kind of doing Everyone's its thing dead. nothing happens. Right. Yeah, everybody's dead at this point. So, but this was actually a criminal case that, um, arose out of what's called the Colfax Massacre. Um, it was in Louisiana. And there was, I think, a new like sheriff had been elected. And the outgoing sheriff was... Uh, I don't know what his deal was. But the incoming sheriff was a huge racist and, and in leagues with the Ku Klux Klan. And so th- this new sheriff, I don't know what led to it but basically he gets um a whole bunch of kkk people and other white people to take over a local courthouse in louisiana and the outgoing sheriff had called in a negro militia so like i said there were black militias um to help defend the courthouse and um, they were slaughtered and so the the defendants were some of these white men that had Mm -hmm. participated in the massacre And they were charged with a federal law that prohibited people from conspiring to deprive anyone of their constitutional rights. So basically, the the charge was that you, um, by killing this militia, deprived them of their Second Amendment Mm -hmm. rights. And the Supreme Court said that the Second Amendment right is not implicated because the second amendment only restricts the federal government not the state government or or indi- or private citizens sure it only talks about the federal the, government the federal cannot government. and infringe this, on the liberty interest this, this is this is true of pretty much all of the amendments of, of the the bill of rights right first amendment like i said congress shall make no law not no one shall make any <laughs> law it's it's specifically congress it's a restriction on the federal power because that's what they were concerned about at the time. They were concerned about this enormous federal power. Uh, and so the, 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 the Second Amendment never applied to states or private individuals, only to federal government. Of course, that's now changed. And, yes. <laughs> and I'm going to get there. <clears throat> so shortly after that, in 1886, another um, case was Presser versus Illinois, and the Supreme Court basically reaffirmed that the Second Amendment only applies to the federal government. Uh, but it actually did a little bit of interpreting of the Second Amendment, even though they said it doesn't apply because, you know, they can do whatever they want. And so the court said that laws may be enacted to restrict or regulate the carrying of weapons, including firearms. So we begin to see that the right to bear arms is not unlimited. Right. It's not an absolute right. Exactly. So, 
And the, the court was also very clear that private individuals cannot form their own militias, that the, that's solely within the power of the government okay. and, and more specifically the federal, federal government, government to, to actually be the kind of overall control. But the, the states had, had some, uh, of course the states had to have some say over it because it's, it's militias right. are local anyway. But, you know, but the court said, you know, otherwise any armed mob could claim protection from disbursement and disarmament, disarmament and saying like any, any just group of armed people will be like, we have a right to bear arms. You can't make us go away or make us put down our guns. <laughs> but there were, there were a whole bunch of rebellions over the course of our history and, and we needed the ability to put those down. Sure. Anyway. Um, there are a couple of early state court rulings that were interesting. A lot of the states did, or actually most of the states did have some kind of analogous right to bear arms. Uh, one from Kentucky in 1822, Bliss versus the Commonwealth. Uh, Bliss was charged with violating a Kentucky law that banned the concealed carry um, of any weapon. And you want to guess what his concealed weapon was? A musket. No, it was a sword cane. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> it was great. So, um, and uh, like I said, Kentucky did have a constitutional right to to bear arms, but it specifically said the right of the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state. So, the court distinguishes between regulations that prohibit exercising a right and laws that regulate the manner of exercising the sure. right. But they actually do ultimately say that the that the ban is not constitutional. Um, with the, with the Kentucky Constitution, and for some a really weird reason, I don't follow the logic, but they say that if a ban on concealed weapons is constitutional, then a ban on unconcealed weapons must also be constitutional. Therefore, they're both they both must be unconstitutional. I don't follow that logic. I don't think it makes any sense, but I think there might be a reason for that because. The reason this case is well known is because of how rare it is. A lot of the states actually had concealed weapons uh, bans, mm-hmm. and they were always upheld. Kentucky's like one of the only ones that didn't up- uphold their concealed weapon ban. Interesting. Wait, so it, it's saying that if you can't, okay. Sorry, I'm just like processing this yeah. in my <laughs> in my head um, because it's it seems like it's more common now that states have allow you to carry a concealed weapon and not an unconcealed weapon? Or is that just kind of my assumption? Uh, you're, yeah, you're kind of wrong about that. Okay. Um, you should look at that NPR infographic. Again? It, it, <laughs> it, it does talk about which states allow concealed carry because not all states do allow concealed carry. Okay. Uh, well, and I, and I definitely knew that because I think Wisconsin, it was, uh, it was different between Minnesota and Wisconsin. That yeah. was always such an interesting thing it, going over it, the border. It is interesting. If you look at the these kind of early cases that talk about concealed weapons bans, mm-hmm. um, a lot of it is because they, they think the the person, the type of person that carries a concealed weapon is a sneak and a thief. You know, I kind of agree. I mean, not, <laughs> not with that classification, but um, I, I would much rather, I yeah. would rather know what I'm getting into yeah, versus... I, well, I, I think that's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> it. That it's like, if you feel like you need to defend yourself, just like... Just you know, carry, own it. <laughs> carry it openly. Like, yeah. It, like the, the open carry of a sword was not banned. So no. why do you need a sword in your cane? Right. Unless you want to be sneaky and underhanded. And that just wasn't 
that there is disrespect for that type of behavior. Sure. <laughs> anyway, um, one other uh, state case um, that I'll talk about. 1840 uh, comes from Tennessee. I met, I think is how you pronounce it. I met versus state. Um, the defendant was charged with violating a law that banned wearing a concealed Bowie knife. Which, if you don't know what a Bowie knife is, <laughs> it's a it's a large bladed knife that was often used in fighting. Um, and the Kentucky, the Kentucky Constitution said that the free white men of this state have a right to keep and bear arms for their common defense. So this is, it's slightly different language, but the court upholds the constitutionality of the ban. Because like I said, most states had concealed weapons bans and they, they were upheld. Um, but what's important in this case is that the court specifically said that the term bear arms is a military phrase. Mm-hmm. They're very clear on that, that the term bear arms only has a military meaning. Right. It's not for an individual to be able to use whenever they want. Right. Exactly. So there are a number of other cases that talk about the right to bear arms uh, in, in context of state constitutions. And most of them are very clear that it's a militia based right. So moving into the 20th century, yes. take us there. <laughs> there. There are a couple, there's only a few Supreme Court cases. I'm only going to talk about one because it's the only one that I think really, really matters. Yeah, some the, I think so too. Some of the other ones are less interesting, but it's, it's U.S. versus Miller in 1939. So toward the end of the Great Depression. And one big problem at that time was there was a lot of criminal activity with gangs and mobs. And in an attempt to curb this kind of gang and mobster activity, Congress placed a really heavy tax on the interstate transport of guns, uh, specifically ones that were favored by gangsters, um, such as a sawed-off shotgun or um, certain types of, like, a Tommy gun or something like that. Um, and it was actually a really effective. The The use of these types of weapons went down drastically once once Congress imposed yeah. this really heavy tax. But anyway, in, in this case, the defendants had a sawed-off shotgun. They had not paid the tax. So they're, they're charged with <laughs> tax evasion, basically. Uh. And in a, it's a unanimous decision from the um, Supreme Court. Uh, the, the court upheld the tax as a legitimate exercise of congressional power. Um, but they also wrote at length about the history of militias, and emphasized that any right to have firearms was always linked to the amendment's, quote, obvious purpose <laughs> of, of ensuring that a militia um, could comply with Article 1, Section 8, where, you know, the 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 con- uh, Congress had the power to, to organize, to organize the, the, military, the militias, right. right? And like I said before, like, it was, it was usually up to the individual to, to bring your own weapon and arm yourself. Um, actually in the 17 and 1800s, there were, there were plenty of laws that said all, uh, eligible men for, who are eligible for militia service must at all times have these certain things like ammo, ammunition and gunpowder and and, you're ready to uh, go at any time. Basically. And people never complied with them. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that brings us to the 21st amendment or 21st amendment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not prohibition <laughs> it brings us to uh the 21st century where we get the most important case in the second amendment's history which is dc versus heller yeah uh, it was 2008 and it was a five to four decision hugely controversial and the majority opinion was written by justice scalia of course it was. and 
and there are two different descents, both of which are pretty good, but I'm, I'm not going to talk about them right now because what's important is what Scalia decided the right, Second Amendment the means. means. And he decided that the, the Second Amendment has two different clauses, oh. which I, I think is it's fair to say that. Okay. But he specifically says the Second Amendment is naturally divided into two parts. It's prefatory clause and it's operative clause. That's pretty much the only discussion he gives about it not being just one entire sentence, right. but it's divided into two different uh, clauses. And he then goes on to explain why a little bit. But he, he says that the prefatory clause may resolve any ambiguity in the operative clause, but it does not limit or expand the scope of the operative clause. So what that means is the the, the prefatory clause is that first part that says... Uh, uh, the reference to the militia, right? Yeah, a, a well-regulated militia being necessary to... Um, Defend uh, to, to the free state... Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That's the prefatory clause. He basically right. says, this is the introduction. <laughs> and it has no effect or meaning other than that. On the second that. part. Oh, wow. Right. Which is an interesting thing for Justice Scalia to say. Because he is notorious <laughs> for being a textualist. Right. So for him, of all people, to say, yeah, this chunk of words that's in the Constitution don't have any weight whatsoever they mean nothing it's just for you know context yeah but the context isn't important right so it i mean really really incredible that he would make these broad absolutely things without really explaining why it he thinks that it's naturally divided into the prefatory clause and an operative clause um he then goes on to talk about the so-called operative clause, which is the, the, the right to keep to bear arms shall not be infringed. Um, but he dismisses any claim that keep and bear arms has any military meaning. That it has any tie to that yeah. first. D- despite sure. these other court cases, which is just a few that I mentioned, that clearly tie uh, the Second Amendment to military or militia service and specifically talk about the right to bear arm or, you know, to bear arms being a military or militia. Well, and it is term. such, I mean, as you said, coming from him, I mean, being a textualist, but also being, I mean, he makes so much reference to the founding fathers and to right. the creation, I mean, to the kind of contextual creation of um, of the Constitution that it's ironic he all of a sudden sort of ignores the entire, I mean, not just the text, but the historical context as yeah. well yeah i mean he 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 tends to be a fan of of, of originalism in mm-hmm. trying to divine the original intent exactly um but he he has described himself as a faint-hearted originalist <laughs> because like i said earlier he picks and chooses <laughs> well i mean that allows him to do that but it's also like it's really hard sometimes to figure out what their founding fathers sure. actually meant plus the fact that they disagreed all, all the, the time, time. So there is no necessarily one original intent. I think that's why he describes himself as a faint-hearted mm-hmm. originalist. I, I th- I'm like, okay, that, that's yeah, fine. Sure. But he still is the textual guy. That's his thing. Yeah. Anyway. That's probably why they had him write the opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, no one can question it. Yeah. So the more recent, well, not quite more recently, but in 2010, 
was perhaps the next most important case in the yeah. Second Amendment's history. And that's McDonald versus City of Chicago. And we don't need to go into detail about it, but if you recall earlier, I said that the Supreme Court always said the Second Amendment only applied to the federal government. Well, that's this is the case where the Second Amendment is incorporated, which for anyone who doesn't know what incorporation means, other than talking about businesses and incorporation, the process of incorporation is how the Bill of Rights and the various amendments have been translated from only applying to the federal government to also being applied to state and local governments through the 14th Amendment, because the 14th Amendment specifically references uh, uh, states. states. Yes. And so now the Second Amendment is incorporated. Now the Second Amendment applies to states and local governments as well. Uh, Yeah, that was also a five to four decision. So it was another very controversial decision. And yeah, I, I've not studied that case quite as much. So I don't have as much to say about it, mostly because I think that you, you know, if, if you really wanted to incorporate <laughs> it, I probably wouldn't put up a huge fight, but I think that the biggest problem is DC versus Heller and that interpretation. I, yeah, absolutely. Limit. Because if you can't, I mean, I think it also kind of goes to show with what you were, what we were talking about earlier too, is that if one state does something, I mean, just the effect of if a state were even to be able to regulate more stringently, it's not really going to necessarily make the difference that people are hoping it would. Um, not to say the state shouldn't do anything, right? Right. Um, well, I mean, obviously, but it doesn't fringe on the rights yeah. in the same way. So I mean, obviously, this you know, state governments can do certain things that will make a difference. Yes. But, yeah. But you know, in going back to the case of New York, when they banned guns, or not banned with it, when Virginia enacted its one gun handgun per month mm-hmm. regulation. Well, that just meant that, okay, we're just going to go get our guns from Texas or Florida, exactly. right? Exactly. That Unless you have some kind of wide, you know, all the states do it or most plan, states do it exactly. or the federal government is able to do it, it's really going to be hard to, to see any real efforts. Sorry for the abrupt break, but Brian and I decided to split this episode in half because it ended up being close to an hour and a half long. Tune in next time for part two. You can get the next episode automatically and completely free on your smartphone by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow Sidebar online at sidebarthepodcast.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening.